Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada live stream. Uh, today is Thursday, October 26th. Thank you all for being here. Um, we have a very uh, packed show today. We're going to hear from our good friend and contributor, Kali Grifat Alarir, uh, coming to us live from Gaza uh, in a few minutes. Um, we also have, of course, uh, deep analysis that you probably won't hear anywhere else uh, from uh, our contributing editor, John Elmer, as well as uh, Abdel Jawad Omar in the Occupied West Bank. And we're going to hear from some students um, who are facing repression inside uh, the university um, in, uh, in London. Um, but uh, first, as always, our executive director, Ali Abunima, is here. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Wynn Stanley. We are associate editors. Uh, Ali, as always, um, your remarks. Thanks, Nora. And I want to start today by recalling the words of Arnon Sofer from a notorious interview he gave in the Jerusalem Post in May of 2004. Sofer is an Israeli demographer, and at that time he was a senior advisor to Ariel Sharon, the Israeli prime minister who implemented the so-called disengagement from Gaza in 2005. That created the situation we know now, a Gaza with no Israeli settlers in it, but sealed from the outside world, surrounded and totally under Israel's control. Sofer explained the logic of Sharon's plan, which Israel also called unilateral separation. Here's what Sofer said in that 2004 interview. Unilateral separation doesn't guarantee peace. It guarantees a Jewish Zionist state with an overwhelming majority of Jews. What will be the price of this? The day after unilateral separation, the Palestinians will bombard us with artillery fire and we will have to retaliate. But at least the war will be at the fence, not in the kindergartens of Tel Aviv and Haifa. We will tell the Palestinians that if a single missile is fired over the fence, we will fire 10 in response. And women and children will be killed and houses will be destroyed. Further down the line, when 2.5 million people live in a closed-off Gaza, it's going to be a human catastrophe. Those people will be even bigger animals than they are today, with the aid of an insane fundamentalist Islam. The pressure at the border will be awful. It's going to be a terrible war. So if we want to remain alive, we will have to kill and kill and kill all day, every day. If we don't kill, we will cease to exist. The only thing that concerns me is how to ensure that the boys and men who are going to have to do the killing will be able to return home to their families and be normal human beings. I quoted this interview with Sofer in my 2006 book, One Country, and I've returned to it again and again after each of Israel's massacres including the Great March of Return in 2018, when Israel sent snipers to murder and maim thousands of unarmed people protesting against the siege at the Gaza fence. I come back to it now because it offers further evidence, if we even need it, that the genocide underway in Gaza is deliberate and premeditated, complete with the language that Palestinians are animals. I've never doubted that Israel was truly gen genocidal because 
after all, what was the Nakba and everything that has happened since, except episodes in an ongoing genocide? But we often talked about an incremental genocide. I honestly didn't think Israel would be able to engage in mass extermination as Sofer called for, not because it didn't have the intent, but because I thought the world wouldn't allow it, that there would be a limit even for Israel's so-called friends. I admit now that I was naive, I was wrong. Not only will Israel's friends not oppose mass extermination and mass expulsion, they will support, support it and deny it at the same time as Joe Biden did when he cast doubt on the horrifying death toll in Gaza. But whether Biden believes it or not, that death toll keeps going up sickeningly. More than 7,000 people killed, including 3,000 children, more than 18,000 injured. Among the latest dead, the wife and two children of Wa'el Dahdur, Al Jazeera's correspondent. In my mind, this was as deliberate as Israel's murder of Shirin Abu Akleh, and it came only a day after it was reported that Secretary of State Antony Blinken had put pressure on Qatar to tone down Al Jazeera's coverage. I'm also sorry to report that among the dead are several members of the family of Ahmed Aburtema, a longtime contributor to the Electronic Intifada, whose voice you have heard on this live stream. Ahmed is one of the founders of the Great March of Return. We've learned that Ahmed and two of his children are alive but injured. We're trying to find out more about their situation, and we're all praying uh, for their welfare and recovery. Meanwhile, an estimated 1.4 million people in Gaza are internally displaced. That's out of a total population of 2.3 million. About 200,000 housing units have been completely or partially destroyed in Gaza. More than 200 educational facilities have been hit, including at least 29 UNRWA schools. More than 100 healthcare workers have been killed in Israeli attacks and another 100 have been wounded. 50 ambulances have been attacked, and half of those are now out of service. 24 hospitals have been ordered evacuated in northern Gaza. And those that are still operating are operating at more than 150% of their capacity. In Gaza, at least 130 newborn babies dependent on incubators are now at risk of death due to lack of electricity. There are approximately 166 unsafe births per day taking place in Gaza. Today, UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, warned that if fuel is not received into Gaza, UNRWA will be forced to significantly reduce and in some cases bring its humanitarian operations across the Gaza Strip to a halt. The coming 24 hours are very critical. In fact, UNRWA has already abandoned uh, or ended some of its uh, services by abandoning its shelters in the north of Gaza and all the people in them to their fate. As this catastrophe spirals before our eyes, world governments have been divided into two camps, those led by the United States, which fully support the genocide, and those which disapprove of the genocide, but have done uh, little or nothing to stop it. 
Reportedly, President Lula of Brazil has described what Israel is doing in this way. It's not a war, it's a genocide that has killed nearly 2,000 children and who have nothing to do with this war. They are victims of this war. And last week, President Gustavo Petro of Colombia spoke in similar terms. There, are, there may be other world leaders too who recognize the genocide in Gaza for what it is. Turkey's President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has said that the Israeli attacks on Gaza constitute open oppression, brutality, a massacre, and barbarism. Today, Bahrain, Egypt, Jordan, Kuwait, Morocco, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates issued a joint statement condemning the targeting of civilians and the violations of international humanitarian law in the Gaza Strip. But where is the action commensurate with all these words? Has a single country even cut off its diplomatic relations with Israel, let alone canceled a trade deal? Some of these countries, including Jordan, are reportedly the staging grounds for a major U.S. military deployment in the region, a deployment ordered by Joe Biden to shield Israel while it continues the grisly job of exterminating Palestinian children in Gaza at a rate now exceeding 150 children per day. Today, UNICEF said, almost every child in the Gaza Strip has been exposed to widespread destruction, relentless attacks, displacement, and severe shortages of essentials such as food, water, and medicine. UNICEF called for an urgent ceasefire and humanitarian access, as, as well as for the release of what it calls hostages. UNICEF's regional director, Adele Khodor, said, the situation in the Gaza Strip is a growing stain on our collective conscience. I can only agree with that. However, isn't it telling that UNICEF did not even have the guts to name the state that has already murdered more than 3,000 children and exposed every child to life-threatening danger? China and Russia, the two biggest powers in the UN Security Council other than the US, are pushing for a ceasefire, and that is critically important and a hopeful development. In its latest cynical maneuver, the U.S. put forward a draft resolution at the Security Council that wholly adopted the Israeli position and didn't call for a ceasefire. Needless to say, it went nowhere. The semi-official China Daily has excoriated U.S. obstruction of any resolution that could gain support for the rest of the world. Its editorial today says the following. The position of China and many other countries voting against the U.S. proposed draft resolution is based on facts, law, and conscience. What they oppose is that the draft is evasive on the most urgent issue of ending the immediate hostilities. That is not only irresponsible, but also dangerous. It is tantamount to paving the way for large-scale military actions and giving the green light to further escalation of the conflict. The draft resolution did not call on the parties concerned to stop the indiscriminate and asymmetrical use of force. Such an evasive and ineffectual resolution would do nothing to ease the plight of the people in Gaza. Indeed, it would only worsen their predicament. 
it is clear that the US is seeking to establish a new narrative on the Palestinian question by ignoring the fact that the Palestinian territory has been occupied for a long time and evading the fundamental issue of independent statehood for the Palestinian people. That's the uh, view in the China Daily. And China's view undoubtedly represents the global majority outside the stubborn, fanatical, racist Western elites whose bitter hatred of the Palestinian people spurs them to support Israel's extermination campaign. There are also signs that Russia is taking a more active role. And today, Russia's government received a high-level Hamas delegation in Moscow, and we must believe that Russia is talking to all sides. We must hope that all these efforts, as well as the ongoing global protests and statements, increase the pressure on Washington to end its support for the genocide. We have to continue to raise our own voices in every place that we can. Stop the bombing, stop the genocide, turn the water on, let the people in Gaza live. Ali Abunima, our executive director here at the Electronic Intifada. Thank you so much, Ali. We are going to get into more of um, the new uh, analysis on some of the, the, the points that you just raised in your remarks um, later on in the show. But we want to first turn to our good friend and contributor, our colleague Rifat Alarir uh, in Gaza. Um, Rifat, uh, we're going to bring you on without your camera for um, your own safety, um, and uh, but but uh, we can hear your voice. Can you tell us? Um, can you tell us how you are right now? What 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 is the current situation like? And and are you safe? What does Thank that you. even mean? <laughs> Thank you, Nora Ali. Aisa and your uh, guests, thank you very much for having me. I want to start by quoting uh, Wael uh, uh, is a friend. I taught his uh, son Hamza, and I, I have known him for like more than 10 years. Uh, amazing people, the whole family. When he ha had to say, uh, to, to bid his son farewell his family and we realized later that uh, one of his grandchildren was also uh, killed in the deliberate attack he said these are tears of humanity not the tears of defeat or fear or cowardice the Israeli occupation can go to hell and he used this beautiful Arabic word malish, meaning it's okay this shall pass and this is how we all feel, whether we were personally uh, hurt, whether we were, uh, uh, whether we lost our homes, loved ones, family members, extended family members, we are experiencing this mixture of, of horror, unprecedented horror. Wherever you go, I moved to three places in the Gaza city and not one is a, a tiny bit safer than the other. Not one of them. There is no place in Gaza, wherever you go, that is safe at all. When, my, when my ho our home was bombed, it was only a miracle, a godly miracle that saved more than 25 civilians, mostly children, 
without a warning, without anything. And of course, Israel and Israelis will always lie. We warned them. We want them to leave their homes. We send warnings. We told them to go to the south. And in the south, the majority of the massacres in the past 10 days took place in, in the south. So there's this feeling of fear depending on who you ask. The children, you know what the word I have been saying to my children that I have been repeating to my, to my children in the past week? Eat less, drink less. And every time I feel that this is going to be my last word, my last sentence to my, to my children, to my kids. I have never, I'm personally well off. Every day I bring home chocolate, candies, everything they want. Fruit, vegetables. But now nothing of this is there in the market, in the shops. The, the, the shelves are empty. And I keep telling them, drink less, eat less. This is where we are here. This is where we are. Explain, my, my, my older uh, children can understand this. But how would you explain to a seven-year-old seven Amal who already survived three wars and hopefully she will survive this fourth barbaric genocidal war? How would you convince her that the, 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 the cookies I got will, should last us for two or three days because they were the last packs in, in, in the shop? How would you convince her that she, 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 she should take only one, one piece? one cookie, rather than three or four or five, like she is used to in normal days. But it's not only about food. This is not an aid issue. Palestine, Gaza is not an, an aid issue. This is an extermination. What Israel is doing is creating, they, long ago they created the concentration camp. But this is now an extermination camp. We speak about uh, uh, more than 7,000 people killed in, in three weeks. And there are at least 1,000, 1,500 people under the rubble. Just this morning, a few meters away, there were deafening, massive. We ran out of adjectives to describe how violent, how barbaric these strikes are. With, and we were staying in a room with big windows to the, to the street, and we had to go to the hallway to hide from the debris because the debris keeps hitting the walls. And it went on for probably one hour. And, and, and guess what? The first responders, the ambulances, couldn't arrive, couldn't reach the area until two hours late. And just now somebody was complaining, why does the ambulance do this? I say because they have always been systematically targeted. So with Israel exterminating families, and bef but before the extermination, there is this systematic way to push people into tiny spaces. To push, I was just reading reports about a friend, somebody I knew some time ago who was killed in 2021. His wife was killed. His children were killed. His parents, his in-laws, his brother, his brother's wife, his brother's children. These are people I know. They live in three or four different homes, houses, flats. But Israel bombed us into tiny corners, tiny spaces, so that they can drop one or two bombs and kill 50 people at one time without having you know, to, to throw even more, more bombs. This is where we are now, systematically targeting doctors. The other day there was 
a report of two doctors whose families were, were killed. This is punishment. What happened to Wael Dahdouh is punishment. Wael is being punished because the, what's his name, the Israeli uh, liberal opposition leader, I forgot his name, said that if the media is reporting the facts, it's biased, biased uh, against Israel with Hamas. If the media is presenting both ideas, both sides, it's also against against Israel. It's very clear those people don't want the facts there. That's why they're targeting uh, uh, civilians, targeting children, targeting families, targeting doctors, targeting journalists, and that's it. It's an extermination. Uh, Rafat, um, what is it like? Uh, trying to get food we we keep hearing of all of these bakeries and markets uh one after the next being targeted uh by israeli missile strikes um how how are how are people in your in 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 the place that you are 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 in right now and also your neighbors how are people able to get food and water right now Oh, it's uh, it's it's too bad that we need to be talking about food or, or, and 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 aid. But this is what Israel is turning this this issue. In in normal days, Gaza imports about five hundred trucks and imports, not Israeli aids, not anybody anybody sending aid. We can import as many trucks as as possible. With a siege that continued for more than uh, 20 days, and then allowing 20 trucks and also trucks that would go only to the north and the middle area and Gaza receiving nothing, no fuel for hospitals. Uh, three days ago, I documented my journey to the bakery nearby. I waited, queued for four, four hours and a half. And I bought uh, bread for two to three dollars, probably one or two days. And in Gaza, when we speak about bread, this is what we eat. 90% of the food we eat in Gaza, we use uh, bread to eat it. It's the stable. And yesterday, the Israel bombed one of the bakeries nearby when they brought down a whole block in Al Jala Street. Uh, there was no uh, bakery yesterday. Today, I had to walk for about one hour and a half. Went to three bakeries. The three of them were closed because they feel threatened and because they are running out of fuel, cooking gas and flour. And I just sent my son uh, to see if any of the bakeries were open uh, in the afternoon and they, there were no bakeries and there was no bread so we had no bread today uh, okay go on Ali. Rifat, when you i mean that, that's uh do you see around you in terms of people now because i mean this has been now going for for 20 days of total siege cutting off food and water uh you've talked on on your twitter about uh and and here today about eating less drinking less D 
do you do you see the impact of that now on the population more broadly and and what do you see you said you walked in the street for an hour and a half what do I, you see in terms of the, the situation and people and and do you talk to people and and just what can you tell us about what people in gaza are saying and doing uh first usually there are uh, I think the rate was more than 60% of poverty, people under the poverty line in Gaza, people, farmers and laborers and workers, blue-collar workers. Those people usually uh, uh, work day, day from one day to another. If they skip a day, if they, if they don't work for a couple of days, they run out of money. So when, when the media asks me, I tell them don't, measure don't use me as you as a measure i have the money but the shops are empty there are i i bought uh uh, uh juice and, and and stuff today and i asked the shopkeeper how do you have anything in the stocks he said no more i said how long are you going to be open he said around a week and then we are going to run out of everything that can be eaten People in Gaza are already slimming down. In addition to the of, to the fear and horror on their faces, they are slimming down. They're losing weight, and it shows. Because everybody is not about me. Everybody is eating eating less. The, the, there is a talk. People talk about how tired we are. And I took a taxi uh, on my way heading to a faraway bakery, and the taxi driver complained he whined he said it's too much enough and one of the the, the guys an elderly man probably the age of my father he said we can't give up they have already killed what they want to kill and destroyed what they want to destroy we can't give up now so despite this hunger literal hunger despite the the, the fear and the terror that every minute we don't measure our 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 lives by the way by the days now we don't even not by the hour. When I go out, I, I say, should I go left or right? When I was waiting in the in the queue for the the, the bread, the, the Israeli warships continuously for more than two hours were shilling from all over our heads. And a building, two uh, two buildings away, a, a flat was hit, and the guy in front of me received a call. Oh no. Um, we're going to try and get Rafat back. Um, as you can imagine, the electricity situation, obviously. Um, the, and the connections, the connections to Gaza yeah. have been, I, I'm sorry to say, getting much more difficult. Yeah. And we have difficulty sometimes getting responses from people at all. So it's a miracle that we're able to even speak to Rifat, but I hope I hope we're able to uh, get him back. And just to emphasize that a number of groups have come out and international lawyers, and this shouldn't have to be said, it should be clear that using starvation as a weapon is a crime against humanity. And that's what Israel is doing when you cut off food to 2.3 million people half of them children this is a this is genocide it's a 
a crime against humanity. It's the, the kind of stuff we used to read about right. in the history books of starving the ghettos in Europe. Uh, the Nazis would starve the ghettos uh, and people would be reduced to eating, you know, what whatever they could find. I don't want to start saying things, but this is what, what's happening now. And for the world to just sit there and allow it is is just beyond shocking. Yeah, we've heard for many years and we've, we've known for many years from Israeli press that the Israeli planners have been calculating the amount of calories that it takes to keep Gazans barely alive um, in the Gaza Strip. And now we're facing the most extreme version of this genocidal logic played out before us. Yeah. Um, as we work to get Rafat back on the line, uh, Asa, do you want to introduce um, our guests in London? Okay, so we'll go to our next segment. We're going to talk about some of the repression that's been happening uh, all around the world. But um, specifically today, we're going to focus on students in the UK. And we're going to be joined now in this segment by our two guests from the SOAS Palestine Society um, and we have uh, Rida Jawad who is uh, a SOAS alum and an activist and a writer and also Maryam Ofkir who is part of SOAS Palestine Society. Thanks for joining us tonight guys. Thank you so much for inviting us and um, honestly all the points that you have made really great. And it's very unfortunate that as so as we are being forces are being silenced. And uh, sorry, Miriam, can I can I stop you for a sec? You've got a bit of um, feedback. If you've got a headset, uh, if you've got some headphones, that might help. Okay. Um, but uh, maybe while you sort that out, um, Rida, maybe you could uh, introduce yourself. Hi, uh, firstly, thank you for having us. Uh, we want to extend our solidarity to you and to all the people in Gaza and Palestine uh, who are fighting for a better world everywhere. Um, how's the sound? Can you guys hear me well? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, as you know, SOAS has officially begun the steps uh, of expelling, uh, suspending students for holding solidarity action um, with the people of Gaza and Palestine. And uh, we want to begin by first saying that it's abhorrent and despicable that SOAS and other British institutional educations have officially began taking these steps. Um, I mean, we already know that SOAS, SOAS students and British students already pay an extortionate amount of money for tuition fees. Um, and now they are being barred um, from attending lectures and classes um, simply because of holding um, a solidarity action um following the events of early october and it has been weeks since um we've been given given an update by the SAS administration on um these suspended students and they're yet to receive anything um uh, about whether they're going to be unsuspended whether they're going to be allowed back into classes um, and lectures and we see this as an attempt to create a sort of informational gap to students um and to try and bar members of the Palestinian society and the student body at large to get involved in further action in solidarity with uh, the people of Gaza. And it's, it's, a, it's a clear sign um, to, to 
remove this right of freedom of expression um, that students should be allowed to hold on campus. Uh, our actions are always peaceful. We all, always follow uh, protocols and the guidelines um, given to us by the South administration. Um, and it's, it's, it's abhorrent and there's nothing else um, that should be fought against. All students should unite in allowing these students back into education. Um, yeah, um, Mariam, how's your sound doing now? Um, hi guys, can you hear me properly? Yeah, that that's better? better, thank okay. you. So um, as um, my friend Rida has mentioned, um, so as students, and to be honest, all students across the UK, across UK universities are facing punishments, our voices are being silenced and um, especially here at SOAS, what has happened is that during Freshers Week, which is the beginning week of the year where students come, new students are here, you know, they're joining societies and so on. Um, UJS, which is a Zionist organization, has been invited onto our campus by SOAS management, which and, is... And just sorry, Mariam, just, and that's the, uh, the Union of Jewish Students, which as our reporting has, has shown, and Asa, correct me if I'm wrong, Yes. has been actually funded by the Israeli yes. government. So yes. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so whereas... The embassy, the embassy in London. The, emb the Israeli yeah. embassy. So whereas the UJS presents itself as being just about representing Jewish students, this is actually an organization that advocates on behalf of Israel and has even been funded by the... The Israeli embassy and also just for some of our listeners who are uh, um, outside the UK I think it's just important to mention that SOAS the School of Oriental and African Studies is considered a major world academic institution focusing on uh, the Middle East and Africa and Asia and so you would think and it's also supposed to be a really pro progressive university allegedly and from what mm. you're telling us students are being suspended yeah from from their you know from their university yeah. for the alleged crime of expressing solidarity with palestinians who yeah exactly and, and you know of specific you. cases of your friends that and fellow students this has happened to yeah, um, actually, um, as you've mentioned, um, UJS um, has ties with Israel, but also beyond that, one of their aims organization, is to bring Israel to campus. And you can see this on the website and bringing Israel to our campus, to our university. What this means means it's, it's directly targeting Palestinian voices. Palestinian students, Palestinian societies, therefore our committee and our society as a whole, but also bringing Israel to campus. The fact that this means bringing the same Israel that has been targeting Palestinians and oppressing them for over 75 years, it means bringing the same Israel whose politicians, whose um, uh, social media accounts have been referring to Palestinians as human animals, as children of darkness, means bringing the same Israel that is built on the suffering, on the blood of Palestinian, um, on Palestinian lives, and the same Israel that is using white phosphorus and committing war crime upon war crime on over 2 million Palestinians that are living under a, an illegal blockade in Gaza. This is the same Israel that UJS uh, was attempting to bring onto our campus um, under our name, 
under, uh, you know, because this is our university, this is SOAS, SOAS management under the leadership of Adam Habib decided it was a good idea to bring UJS to our campus, not only obviously targeting us, um, but also showing the engagement and normalization with um, Zionist organizations. And so um, also SOAS has not uh, come out uh, and basically said and reassured to Palestinian students and to Arab and Muslim um, students that, hey, you will be safe and we reassure your safety. Because as we all know, there are an increase, there's an increase of anti-Palestinian racism and students are being targeted of this as um, Nora, I think you've mentioned this on a live stream like a week ago um, with one of your other guests, um, how students are being doxxed, they are receiving death threats. SOAS has done nothing to reassure Palestinian students who might even have family in Gaza, in the West Bank, that they will be safe. And not only SOAS, all UK universities, none of them have come out and said to their Arab students, to their Muslim students, to their Palestinian students, that they will be safe. Palestinian students are having to hide their identity on campus because they are scared. This is what it has come to. And back to the suspensions and to the warnings, what has happened is that um, SOAS management has um, been giving warnings and suspensions to um, students, not only from our committee, but even beyond that, students are being targeted for expressing solidarity with the Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians across the diaspora. And this is, a, this is an attack on students and an attack on freedom of spirit of freedom of speech but especially coming from soas it's yeah. it's it's insane. Maryam, Maryam, um, can you just what kinds of activities are students being suspended and punished for is it is it for uh holding rallies is it for expressing opinions online what what are the sorts of activities that they're trying to to dissuade and punish so um, SOAS has suspended and given warnings to students on behalf of this health and safety, um, health and safety um, excuse, I would say, uh, which says that students did not follow the guidelines and rules of SOAS um, as there was um, we were having a rally um, on the main steps and then we moved to the green space. And um, apparently we were not following guidelines, which is not true. Um, it's not true. Um, they have also, this is not the first time that we've been targeted throughout the years. SOAS has repressed um, Palestinian voices and Palestinian students, especially from the Palestine Society Committee. And an, a, great a great example of this actually is through securitization. SOAS employs so many security officers uh, office, um, from private security companies that come around on campus with um, body cameras, recording students without our consent, um, targeting students and so on and so on. So it's actually not the first time that SOAS has done this. And thankfully we have, um, we have uh, a petition where we received over 3000 signatures, which is amazing. Over 3000 people are on the right side of history. Over 3000 people know that we are basically being intimidated and targeted and silenced and no matter what they do this is not obviously just um so as university as i've said it's across all uk universities and even beyond that um no matter what they do we will not be silenced because what's going on in gaza is a genocide what's going on in gaza is illegal is against human rights palestinians have a right to live 
and no matter what they do we will not be silenced and we will continue to show our support for the Palestinians. The, yeah. I, I want to show you something. Tamara, uh, Tamara Nassar, who's always in the background making this uh, machine work so smoothly. Tamara, can you put up this uh, web page for people to look at? So this is from the SOAS uh, website. Um, and uh, I don't know if, if we can see the, uh, the image. Yeah, just pa pause there. Just let's read that sign. This is from the SOAS website and it's it's their um page highlighting what the university is doing for um black history month and they have a, a photo here which is very inspiring and it says if you are neutral in situations of injustice uh you have chosen the side of the oppressor um so that that's the public message that soas is putting out uh saying that they support marginalized people fighting uh, on behalf of the oppressed against institutions of power and that neutrality is bad. So, but as SOAS students, is the university living up to that? And, and other UK universities living up to that? Or is this just branding and marketing? Look how cool we are. But when the oppressed actually do stand up and speak, they're punished. This is completely correct. I mean, it's already been mentioned. So at um, School of Oriental and African Studies, Edward Said specifically named SOAS as a colonial institution in his book, Orientalism. Um, it, it's no surprise that it's continuing its colonial legacies today. Um, under the leadership of Adam Habib, a new management has come into place at SOAS. And you can see this hyper-securitization taking place on campus. Uh, SOAS has spent over 600,000 pounds in security costs in the space of five months last year from September to March. It's, it's a clear sign uh, to silence uh, any voices who are in support of Palestinian, um, in support of the Palestinian struggle. Um, this is just, uh, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, it's just, uh, as you've shown Ali, it's just uh, an image to, to show to the people when in reality it wouldn't be barring uh, suspending its own students from classes um and it's absolutely disgusting it, it goes back to this um and actually under the leadership of adam habib who was also director at wits university in south africa um as they were protesting for free uh, tuition fees as there was an increase in tuition fees back in south africa he actually resorted to hiring private security forces on his own students, which they fired rubber bullets on students, and many, many were injured and hospitalized. Um, and now he's the director at SOAS. Um, it, it's not surprising at all. Um, and it goes back to the idea, the, the, the struggle for academic boycott and how Israeli uh, British universities are also complicit in upholding Israeli apartheid and Israel's uh, colonial um, tactics it's using against the people of Gaza and Palestine. Um, and we learn from the struggles of previous national liberation groups such as that in South Africa and their focus on um, academic boycott um, in the fight against apartheid. In the 1960s, the African National Congress initiated the struggle for um, academic, political, economic, 
continued until 1990 when the fall of apartheid was um, was achieved, and and this is what we need in the UK. Uh, our universities are complicit in Israeli apartheid. SOAS um, has contracts um, with Israeli University, Haifa University, which is built on colonized Palestinian land, which it sends SOAS students to. The Palestinian population in Haifa and Mount Carmel was reduced, ethnically cleansed from 61,000 to 4,000 in, in 1948 during the Palestinian Nakba. Um, and in the university that SOAS sends students to in occupied Palestine, um, there are military academies taking place on campus. They train military soldiers. Israeli soldiers on campus. It has been documented that they have been discriminating against Palestinian students at Haifa universities. And we see um, how Israeli institutions, uh, regardless of this liberal uh, argument that there needs to be a continuous knowledge production um, available um, throughout universities, we see that Israeli universities such as Tel Aviv actually hold bodies of murdered Palestinians and refuse to give them back to their families. Um, and how they have linked directly with the Israeli state. And these can't be separated at all. So we also call for SOAS to end its contract with Haifa University invest in over $4.5 million. Um, and it started this new um, contract in the year of 2021. So it's not long ago um, with Haifa University. And as you mentioned, SOAS prides itself in being this progressive, universal, decolonial, having this decolonial outlook in its teaching. But we as students, as alumni, staff, refuse to remain silent any longer. This is the point before national liberation struggles. They go all out hard in, in the political silencing of activists and those who stand in solidarity with liberation groups to silence them. This is the critical point for academics and teachers to stand up. Um, and we want to emphasize yeah. the hypocrisy of, uh, of SOAS, who for weeks, if not years, decades, have chosen to remain publicly neutral, silent, yeah. as they have watched the Palestinian people suffer, suffer and be publicly dehumanized in every conceivable way, in the media, in education, and government policy. Uh, you cannot continue to teach about topics about the Middle East and topics such as colonialism, decolonization, and become specialists and experts on and creating acad accomplished academic careers on these profiles while remaining apolitical, neutral, politically spineless, and feeble, even at attempts at showing solidarity. We need something more than petitions, than right. statements um, yeah. to take place. Um, our lives here in Britain are not detached from what, what goes on around the world and in Palestine. Uh, we will not allow for Western academia to whitewash, co-op, or illegitimately redefine the struggles of national liberation and the struggles of colonized people. Uh, the struggle in Palestine is one of the most explicit for, uh, forms of colonialism still taking place, and we demand that that our students, academics, teachers take a firmer stand and join us in being on the right side of history. Uh, we've all yeah, taken absolutely. Time. Thank you so much, Ruda. And we need to wrap this segment. We thank you very much for joining us. But we've got to go back to um, our friend uh, Rifat in Gaza soon. But just very, very quickly before we do, and uh, one quick question for Miriam from our viewers. From one of our viewers, if I can um, 
get it up on the screen here. Um, it's uh, who's being targeted. I mean, obviously, without naming names, but is it, you know, are they targeting um, people who, you know, are, um, well, Arab and Muslim students, essentially, or people who are on visas and things like that? Are they targeting people who are somehow precarious? Um, so thank you for that question. I think it's a great question. Um, SOAS is targeting actually any student who has been um, proudly uh, on the right side of history. That being said, that means any student who has been showing solidarity with the Palestinian cause. Um, so actually, it's not just members of the Palestinian Society Committee that have been targeted, including myself, but it actually goes beyond that. And it's, you know, it's very ironic because um, SOAS um, not only benefits, as you've mentioned, from this like aesthetic, I would say, of being anti-imperialist and progressive and so on, but it's also targeting so many students, some of these students who actually have are dealing right now with it in a very stressful way. They have um, severe mental health issues, and this is obviously not only affecting them mentally, but also, you know, in in the sense of their education is being targeted. So it's actually um, not um, just Arab students or Muslim students or Palestinian students. Any student who has been showing support for Palestine has been targeted. They have been suspended or given warnings. And that's mm. that's that's really the truth of SOAS. Okay. Amazing. Thank, thank you very much, guys. Um, the, the ticker is there on the bottom of the screen for our viewers. The petition that was mentioned earlier is is there, so people can go there. And yeah, thank you so much for having that fun. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you both. And we're we're obviously going to keep tracking the stories, not just you know from one university in uh, one city in the UK, but this is happening across the UK, across Europe, and of course yeah. in North America. Um, you know, just just yesterday, Florida's governor Ron DeSantis uh, issued an order, effectively. Um, demanding that universities ban chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine. So this is going to be an ongoing fight. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's, it's, it's important to say that this is an attempt to really criminalize yeah. support for uh, Palestinian rights and to equate support for Palestinian rights with terrorism. Right. And so uh, Governor DeSantis's order in Florida, although... Uh, almost certainly unconstitutional yeah. plays the role of stigmatizing students right. and anyone who speaks up and putting them in right. fear. Exactly. And this is an old, this point. is really an old story, but it's now really on steroids. That's right. So we're going to keep watching that. We do have our good friend Rifat uh, back on the line. Rifat, are you, are you there? Uh, we can't. We still can't hear you. It's... Sometimes there's a delay. So yeah. Hello. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I don't even remember where we left off. Um, Rifat, if you can just for a, the you know just for a few minutes. Um, I you know I, when when the students were talking about their university and and the the criminalization of speaking up and standing up for Palestinian rights and speaking up against Israel's genocidal uh, attack on, on Palestinians in Gaza. Um, you know, you're also a university teacher. You're a professor. You're a writer. You have students. Um, you mentor writers. 
and and there has there has been zero solidarity or any sort of uh, statements by these elite European or American or Canadian universities. Which all immediately, right. by the way, cut off ties with all Russian educational institutions. Right. They right. all indig indignantly cut off ties with, but, and right. also IUG, the Islamic University of Gaza has, has been bombed. Yeah. But if that, uh, yeah, talk, talk about, talk about that if, if you have anything oh, to say. It's, uh, a, when I was in my home, I met a student of mine uh, in a queue and he ins insisted I take his turn. Like he all, you know how it is in Gaza, we fight over these tiny little things and Arabs. I said, there's no way I can't take your turn. We're here, we are equal, we are here together. And incidentally, three days ago when I was queuing here, I saw another student of mine that I'm teaching poetry and uh, he was way behind me and I like almost fought with him to give him my, my, my line, my, my turn. And he was like so surprised because, you know, it's, it's different. Every, everything is upside down. And I said, I, I am, I'm serious. I want to give you my, my, my place. He said, there's no way. Like, I wish I have a place ahead of you so I can give it to you. And there's this thing when he says, you know what, I spent some of my time studying the poetry course, and I was like, please cut it out. You're all going to pass. You don't have to worry about me being strict and the quizzes and the exams. Let's first live, let's first survive. And then we're going to be uh, like this together, uh, hopefully survive together and build together. And I saw a female student of mine in, in the Yonora school and these three days we spent, because you need to, and, and I think this is not highlighted already. I hope I can write something about it. The schools, the UN schools in Gaza City are abandoned by the UNRWA. The employees there are there at their own risk. The UNRWA doesn't send food or water or anything. It's only charitable people that do this. The, the situation is extremely humiliating and unsanitary in every sense of the word. It's not fit for humans. And I, I, I saw uh, a female student, one of my students, and just was a brief eye contact. She looked away and I looked away. And I wish I could, I could do more. And then today, uh, yesterday, I said, what can I do to my students? Because they are my kids. They, 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 like, they are my children. I feel helpless. And I posted on the, uh, the Facebook uh, post telling them I'm really embarrassed. I don't know what I can do to help to protect you, but I'm helpless myself. But please tell me if anybody needs anything, if you want cash, if you want to top up your mobile phones, please do send me your, uh, your, your this is my, my WhatsApp. And I was really proud that some of them broke this, you know, barrier because people are in need for this, but this is what a person like me can, can do. And then I posted something else. I said, if you can write stuff, please do. Ali promised to, 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 to publish as many of these as possible and improve them. And, 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 and a couple of students sent me stuff. Hopefully I can pass them to, to Ali when I have time to, to go through this. So this is, this is what life it is. One of the students was missing. And look at this beautiful thing. There is a sizable population of cats at IOG. And I, I'll try to send you some of these pictures. I already take them. There was one student. I was rushing late to my class. Not sure where I said this. And there was one of my students feeding the cats. And I was like, 
you were late to my class. She said, can I be late five minutes? I want to feed the cats. And one of the students was like missing these cats, asking about what, what happened to, to, with this beauty, this solidarity, uh, people not hoarding, people uh, uh, helping each other. I remember I bought uh, a bag of, of uh, powder milk and I wanted to pay. And the, the, the cashier, uh, I, I said, how much? Uh, and another guy said, hey, I want something like this. I want a, a bag of, of milk. And the cashier said, it's the last one. And we almost literally fought me and the guy, you know, I said, you take it. He said, no, I will never take it. No, you take it. Please do take it. And you know how, again, Gazans, when they want to pay at restaurant and stuff, this sense of solidarity, this beautiful sense of solidarity, of togetherness, of community, of coming together, it's there. Israel has not. Israel is doing its, its, its you know, utmost efforts to break these bonds, to suffer these beautiful uh, connect, connect, uh, bonds between people and people, even even people who don't know each other. Every time I, I meet somebody who remotely uh, knows me, young or old or a man or a woman, do you need help? How can you you help? How can you how can we help? And I say the same thing uh, 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 to them, despite the fact we are all displaced, we're all suffering, we're all paying a heavy a heavy a heavy price. So against this this beautiful beauty beautiful. Uh, sense of solidarity when we are abandoned by universities by academians by academic institutions those who make money on our pain and suffering there was somebody who said give a couple of years and those people are going to be submitting proposals for grants about genocide about discourse pre-genocide before during genocide and they're going to make money and write research about about about, about us and one of the first institutions to be destroyed was the Islamic University. Because Israel wants us ignorant. Israel is not only fighting man, woman, and, and streets and, and, and infrastructure, but it, it, it is fighting this, it's, it's trying to kill this spirit, this Palestinian spirit of insistence on education, on, uh, uh, on learning. It's really shame that uh, academic institutions, universities, and organizations are not uh, doing the least, the bare minimum to stand for us, to, to support Palestinians, their fellow academians and their fellow students. And that's why those students in, at Harvard and other universities in schools in California walking out, despite the threat that the Zionist, the Israeli lobby usually throws, uh, throws it, it means a lot, a lot to us. And history is going to write uh, uh, about all of these things. Rafat, it's so uh, wonderful and in a way comforting to listen to you. And I, I feel so odd that we who are safe outside Gaza should be, feel comforted by you who is not safe. Um, but it is wonderful to know that people are maintaining that sense of solidarity. It doesn't surprise me. I know from my one visit to Gaza that I managed to do in my life that people in Gaza are are special even among Palestinians because of the experience that they have gone through so many times uh, I think it it creates a special bond among people and uh, it it is uh, it's one of the things I hope that will keep people 
going through just an indescribable nightmare uh, and uh, one that we hope will end now. Uh, uh, you know, it just seems to me utterly reprehensible that anyone could do anything other than call for an immediate, immediate ceasefire. And we hear the children in the background when you're speaking, Refat, and, um, and just pray for them to have a normal childhood. Uh, Rifat, um, are you still there? Yes, and okay. the bombings haven't stopped. I don't think there was a a, a minute of, of of calm in the past uh, probably forty eight hours. It hasn't happened. This is uh, escalating, destroying whole whole blocks in Gaza, in Rafah, and Bet. Uh, uh, in the north, in the south, but mostly in the, in the south, in Rafa. And I uh, uh, was ju just received and sent it to Ali. Not sure you received it, an update about uh, Ahmed. No, still hasn't sent. I, uh, his, fr his brother replied to him, said, uh, I am Ahmed's brother. He is injured, but his son passed away along with five of his uh, uh, family members when their home was Destroy. This is Ahmed Abortema, uh, uh, electronic intifada contributor. And uh, I think Wafa has more information. She says that Ahmed was in critical condition, but he's now stable. Uh, there are about 15, 20% of burns all, uh, all over his body, but he is, uh, alhamdulillah, he's, he's stable. And that's, that's, what, that's the news we, we have. We constantly, uh, my wife just is asking me about one of my uh, my cousins uh, that she was killed in one of the bombings. And before you check, before you understand, before you know the details, you get news about other people killed. And then you forget about this and you come back and realize, when I first heard about uh, Israel bombing a family, a, a, relative, a, a relative's home in Shijaiya, it was seven people killed and many under the rubble. And then all of a sudden there are about 14. And then three of them were killed in, in, in Rafah. That's the, the you know, farthest area in the Gaza, in, in the Gaza Strip, that very near, near Egypt. This is how far they went to be safe. But again, Israeli bombs chased them down, hunted them down. The, the traumas are nonstop. It's impossible to keep up with this, especially with the children and the little ones. Uh, so we're so sorry to receive that news about Ahmed's son. Um, and we we just pray for Ahmed's recovery and uh, pray for mercy for all his family members. And we remember that, you know, it... it it is impossible to, to absorb the scale of the losses, what we just see on social media of people in Gaza or people from Gaza who are, are listing whole family members who have whole f lists of family members who have been wiped out. And it reminds me, and I've said this, uh, it reminds me of when we read history or, or uh, 
accounts of Holocaust survivors who say, I lost everyone. I'm the only survivor in my family. And these are the kinds of stories we're hearing from Gaza. Rifat, um, we, we want to um, let you go so you can be with your family. <clears throat> um, and um, as always, we will keep checking in with you um, day and night, as we have been doing. Um, thank you for your work. Uh, I, I, I don't even know what to say. Thank you for being with us here today. And um, we send all of our love and solidarity. Uh, thank you. See you soon. Thank you, Rafat. Okay. Um, it is just rough news to hear about Ahmed, and it, and you know, it 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 hits harder when it's somebody you know. Yeah. Uh, because Ahmed is a friend. He's someone who has been to Chicago. Uh, and is the kindest, gentlest person you can imagine, a thoughtful person. We stay in touch all the time. He sends me voice messages. Uh, he never loses. He's never lost his sense of gentleness and humor uh, in his voice messages from Gaza. But over the last few days, we were getting very worried about Ahmed because I had not been able, I had not had any response from him since uh monday lunchtime our time which would have been monday evening in 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 gaza and so many people started asking around uh and we only heard this morning that ahmed was injured and only now from rifat that uh that one of ahmed's sons was killed so this is just uh you know this is this is the the scale of the genocide that that is is going on indeed um we're gonna bring on uh john elmer a researcher and now contributing editor to the electronic intifada as well as abdul jawad omar in the occupied west bank um abdul jawad let's start with you uh first off your you, you, you've been listening to Rifat, um, his testimony from Gaza. Um, your initial thoughts on on uh, the last few days of attacks on Gaza, uh, as well as in the West Bank, which is um, obviously being overshadowed quite a bit by what's happening in Gaza. But um, we're seeing sweeping arrest campaigns, uh, you know, uh, the, the number of Palestinian detainees um, and people in jail has uh, apparently doubled in the last uh, three weeks. Um, and we saw yesterday our colleague Tamara Nassar uh, published uh, a report on uh, airstrikes, once again, um, killing people, children, yesterday in, in Janine. So uh, tell us what's going on from your point of view there. Well, I mean, in terms of what Rifat just um, told us, I think it's very hard to put, you know, the pain, uh, the shared pain across Palestine in, in this moment into words. 
a lot of feelings um, come through as we witness this horrendous uh, air campaign being uh, launched at Gaza uh, with all its, um, with the inability for people to actually even mourn because they're always mourning. You know, there's always the next event and the next bomb. And I was just reminded by some of the, the Western intellectuals that, you know, at the beginning of, of the events talked about mourning like Judith Butler and other people, that we don't even have that privilege to mourn in Palestine. We don't even have that privilege to actually just sit down and, and, and cry because we're just worried for uh, the next bomb. Um, that's the first thing that came to mind uh, as Rifat was talking. And I mean, and these feelings are, you know, um, always present in, in, in this moment of horror. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's not the sort of sadness where people are giving up. It's the sort of sadness that, you know, um, you still have a will to fight and a will to continue um, as long as it's possible to continue. So I think that's the, the situation in Gaza, but also the situation in the West Bank. I think from the beginning of this campaign, Israel has tried to make it, make it clear, at least in the West Bank, that it's not operating in the, the normal um, um, you know, rules of engagement and that it's trying to change the rules of engagement or at least provide a specter of changing these rules of engagement. And one of the elements to that is the airstrike that we saw in Janine is that it's, it's, I'm willing to use air power also uh, in the West Bank. And if you want the horror of Gaza to happen in the West Bank, then resistance uh, in the West Bank will only bring that form of horror. That's the message that is, you know, being underlined in terms of, of the airstrike. But I think also on a tactical level, them entering into the Nur Shams Tulkarim camp and having 10 uh, soldiers uh, between killed and injured was a sign that even in, in, uh, in a very highly, uh, you know, let's place it spontaneous form of organized uh, action in these camps like Jnin and, and Tulkarim, um, they're incapable of actually going face to face with fighters. And um, ultimately, the only solution that Israel has um, is uh, air power, again, um, um, to try to uh, make its presence felt, to try to make its power felt. And I think this is on a military level, but I also what is worrying is that there's a significant campaign to arm settlers uh, with machine guns uh, going on. Um, uh, part of the, the current collective madness uh, in Israeli uh, security establishment and the military establishment is to give Bingvir exactly what he was asking for for the past couple of years, which is arming the settlers. And also, it's not a defensive form of arming. It is one that is actually offensive, specifically targeting rural areas across Nablus, Ramallah, and other parts of the occupied West Bank. So what we're seeing is this uh, uh, militarization, total militarization of the settlements, where the distinction between civilian settler and, uh, and a soldier is basically now uh, completely disrupted, at least for the moment. Um, also with a discourse that is trying to play on, uh, you know, the Palestinian historical experience of Nakba, 
and trying to maintain the West Bank in line and in order through also cooperation with the PA and what it's trying to do at this moment, which is also has resulted in the killing of three Palestinians, the martyrdom of three Palestinians across the West Bank. The latest was yesterday night uh, when uh, uh, the martyr Abu Laban was announced uh, dead um, after the initial, um, uh, after the protests that were launched after the Al-Ahli Hospital um, uh, massacre. Um, he was crushed by a PA uh, armed, armed, armored car, um, and he was announced dead yesterday. Um, I can't explain how much fear and horror also exists in the West Bank, but it's one that is not externalized yet. It's internalized. There's a lot of clashes, of course. There's a lot of uh, operations firing at Israeli posts. There's a lot of demonstrations happening all across the West Bank, but at the same time, it's still this moment of disorientation in the West Bank as we face both an internal, um, uh, internal, uh, en yeah, internal en enemy in the in the the PA and uh, and uh, and also the Israeli uh, military presence um, across the I West. Would, yeah, I would, uh, can, if if I can ask you about that, I mean, we see a lot and hear a lot of criticism of the PA, but. I mean, is it just business as usual there in the West Bank with the PA carrying on as it, it wants and people just, I mean, what is it that keeps this situation as, as it is? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying anyone should go out and do anything, but should they go? I mean, what, at what point did the protests turn against the PA in a, more systematic way. We've certainly seen protests against the PA. We've seen the PA using brutal repression. Is it that fear you spoke about last time of civil war that keeps people somewhat restrained from confronting the extent to which the Palestinian Authority is a bitter and mortal enemy of the Palestinian people, a partner in the crimes of the Israeli occupation, a partner in the genocide in Gaza, because when Abbas attends meetings uh, with international official with with European officials, or uh, I don't know how many American officials he's met recently, but certainly with European officials, when he receives European officials who support the genocide in Gaza, isn't he giving them cover to allow them to say, "Oh, we're talking to everyone and we're engaging in diplomacy." I mean, am I am I just someone who's out of touch, sitting in Chicago? Uh, what what do you, what's what's your response to that? I mean, my response is it's it's multi like it's multi layered because I think um, look in 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 the West Bank, there's no real organized movement that has been able or managed to establish itself in opposition to the PA. Uh, beyond what happened in the Northwest Bank in the past couple of years. So the middle classes and upper classes in, in, in the West Bank that usually played a historical role of providing a discourse of, of the struggle of actually um, building, if you want, the idioms, the discourses of what we need to, what needs to be done, you know, raising that question of what should be done. This is a very shattered class. Um, it's it's incapable of organizing itself or mounting a challenge. 
And at this moment, it's choosing silence, um, a horrific form of silence. Um, to be honest, Alia, I mean, I'm, I'm similarly frustrated with the situation here because I think there is that kind of tacit complicity where we externalize um, our anger at the PA, but we're secretly also, um, you know, um, kind of uh, um, happy that what's happening in Gaza. I wouldn't say happy, but, you know, just that the PA is kind of through its collaboration preventing uh, what's happening in Gaza to happen in the West Bank. So it becomes this form of posturing where we say the PA is a collaborationist regime, the PA is doing that and this and that. But at the same time, I think with most people in, in the West Bank right now, it just stops at that. It's uh, There's a lot of anger, but at the same time, we don't see a lot of action. And it only comes from people who are from the lower classes, a very radical uh, orientation towards political uh, action. But the middle class that played this historical role is is vastly missing um, um, from the fight. Um, very few voices. Not a single Palestinian political party has issued a statement against the PA until now, um, at least from the Palestinian national movement. Not a single um, collective of intellectuals has done so. Not a single, you know, there's very few uh, signs that anybody is moving towards that direction, at least on the level of the middle classes. So what we get is spontaneous bursts of anger, but without the ability to organize a movement. There's a lot of historical, sociological reasons. I don't want to go into it. Also, partially why Gaza, you know, was able to create, you know, this organized resistance movement after the Second Intifada and why the West Bank went in another direction completely. But, you know, I think that we still are incapable of dealing with this Trojan horse amidst us and 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 significantly challenge it or weaken it or at least uh, think in the present. And I think that's one of the tragedies of the West Bank, that it's it's totally caught in the past where it's kind of reached a point of this kind of post-political, post-Palestine society. And this is not to speak about everybody because there's other signs in the other direction. But what I mean by that is that what is happening now is that, um, you know, Palestine has become a lost object where we fell in love, we maintain this hope, but we still feel like Palestine is lost. And in the West Bank, that form of feeling permeates Palestinian society. And we're incapable of thinking what happened on 7th October, that Palestine is actually possible that reclaiming Palestine is actually possible. And I think the PA is challenging that through conspiracy theories and through, you know, talking about the horror of what's happening to Gaza and why its policy is, be is a better policy because it gives us a semblance of safety and other things. It plays on these fears and anxieties that exist on people. But I think the, the vast majority of the intellectual classes, the political class in Palestine, even those seemingly in opposition, are not uh, able to garner the language to oppose the PA politically, discursively, or otherwise uh, on the street through organized movements. And this is a, this is a historical uh, problem. And if we start, if, if in the West Bank we don't think the political moment, the political present as it is, as what happened on the 7th October is something where 
Palestine can be reclaimed, then we have a deep, big problem here. And I think this is this needs to be a wake-up call for everybody in the West Bank on all fronts. And to be honest, my diagnosis is is not as hopeful that this is where the direction is leading. Yes, fear of civil war plays a role. Fear of PA muscle plays a role. Fear of being caught in you know PA prisons or being killed plays a role. All of these things. I'm not saying that it's only a form of you know tacit consent. There's a lot of also uh, violence around why people are you know hor horrified and and silenced and and placed in this uh, perpetual feeling where they feel individualized like little atoms with no organized sense of feeling. So there's a lot of violence around that. And among them is the current arrest campaign that you know Israel is launching across the West Bank, which is ironic because it's also a bit um, you know uh, unimaginative. Um, it's very uh, short, uh, uh, short-term thinking because what it's doing it's also getting all of the people who are in opposition to the PA, people from Hamas, to meet when they haven't met for the past ten years. So that's what it's doing. It's actually creating a situation where everybody who has anything to do with uh, political opposition to actually uh, meet in prison and talk with all the prisoners that are already existing there and with the knowledge that they're there, most likely that we will see a massive release of prisoners in the, in the, in the coming uh, period. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's short-term thinking, but it, they're doing it because they're afraid the West Bank will propel a challenge and that's why they're doing it but anyways i don't want to talk too much but um but yeah that's what's happening at least in the west bank currently yeah thank you and uh john um your your further analysis on on the prisoner situation i know you've been watching that very carefully um what what can you say um, about not only the, the the sweeping arrest campaigns, the doubling of the number of prisoners and detainees, um, but also what is the how does it fit into the context of of what we're seeing uh, happening in Gaza? Yeah, I mean the same thing happened when uh, Gilad Shalit was captured in two thousand six. The Israelis went on an arrest uh, um, spree. Um, with the idea that they're increasing the numbers that will make their prisoner exchanges more palatable or possible, I guess. Um, Abdul Jawad is exactly right. It's just an opportunity for people to meet. And we all know um, or assume that they're all about to get out. I mean, even the ex-Mossad um, chief said that, you know, the prisoners are going to be released. That seems to be um, a given. So Israel is just trying to stack up chips in this, like, callous game that they're playing and um, the ability to meet in prison can't be underestimated. I mean, it's an excellent point and it's something that um, should be kept in the forefront. The Palestinians, uh, their movements um, are in a lot of ways are born and entrenched in the prisons. Um, the prison leadership is in, in many cases, um, the senior leadership in the movements. Um, there's uh, time and space in them because of the fights that prisoners have had with their jailers that allows them to have certain amount of space and relative freedoms compared to most prisons where people are separated. I mean, there's lots of uh, solitary confinement, but there's also lots of collective spaces that are used as teaching grounds, 
um, and meeting grounds. And I don't think that should be underestimated at all. And it's uh, a, a really important point. They also did it with Shalit. So we've seen, um, we've seen this before. And, um, oh yeah, go ahead, Ali. No, go ahead, Nora. Did you have a... I was uh, just going to ask about, um, you know, the, the kind of turning, focusing now on, on what's happening in Gaza, specifically in terms of uh, Israel's, um, you know, uh, you know, we keep talking about this ground invasion um, that Israel keeps uh, saying is imminent and just around the corner and we're just about to do it. Um, what, how, how do we analyze what's, what's happening uh, right now in terms of Israel's military, quote unquote, objectives? Uh, well, the Israelis said that they're delaying the ground invasion um, in order to get American advanced air defense systems in place. Um, you know, yesterday, Israel bombed four countries, four parts of countries, uh, Syria, Lebanon, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank from the air. Um, the Americans are sending over urban warfare special forces advisors who have fought in Mosul and Raqqa and the battles of Fallujah. Um, you know, Haaretz had a big story yesterday about the what they called the special airlift um, that the Israelis need um, hundreds of heavy lift planes dropping weaponry off for them. We talked last show about the need for um, raiding their stores for artillery shells. Um, and we're getting delays in this ground operation that we've seen include Netanyahu and Biden coordinating the messaging, right? Um, Biden saying that the numbers in the hospitals are, are are not accurate. And then this morning, the IDF spokesperson says the, the numbers in the hospitals are not accurate, as if they're literally reading off the same, the same piece of paper. Um, but they're sending these special forces uh, advisors. Um, they're sending a second aircraft carrier strike group with all its destroyers as escorts. Um, they want advanced missile defense systems because uh, U.S. forces were targeted the other day in Iraq and Syria. Um, and they're worried about um, a two-front war with Hezbollah. So they need to get sophisticated uh, air defense systems into Israel as well. It's not just getting them into um, the American forces in the region. But American forces in the region, as we know, are significant. There's significant American forces in Iraq um, and in Syria. And of course, Jordan is basically uh, an offshore base uh, for American troops. There's lots of um, targets. It's a target-rich environment. And you have tens of thousands, uh, more than 100,000 uh, allied fighters uh, with Hezbollah in uh, in Iraq that have American forces um, within reach. Of course, you have the Iranians um, have American um, naval assets off of their coast, very close to them. The possibility for this to escalate really quickly is in place. And I think you see the Israelis stalling. Um, the uh, Reserve Golani Brigade uh, General wrote a letter to Netanyahu yesterday talking about the defeatism and that the it makes it look like the army's not ready and is disorganized after this massive defeat. Um, and the general was talking about the fighting courage of the Israeli army. And the examples that he used were from before his lifetime. He cited the last time heroic 
Israeli soldiers was 1973. He didn't mention any of the wars in the last 25 years, which often end in what sure looks like a defeat to most of the world. Um, and so I think the Israelis are delaying because they're not ready for um, what awaits them in the Gaza Strip. They weren't ready for it on October 7th, clearly. And it's the same systems, it's the same soldiers, it's the same command and control, it's the same technological network um, that was just uh, shown that it could be defeated um, so, so swiftly um, that we have conversations about what happened after the defeat of the Israeli army in the south. So I'm not personally super surprised that they're delaying this ground operation. I think I've said from the start that I expect cowardice and I expect that to continue. The aerial bombardment, the cutting off of, of food, people starving in the Gaza Strip. Um, that That's more what I expect. The face-to-face -face fighting on the ground, um, uh, that that seems like I've said before, the record of that is very thin. We're at the point of speculating, so you want to be careful when we're doing this, but, um, but if, the Israeli army's trains, but they don't actually fight. But uh, I, I want to ask you a couple of things, John, including going back to something we talked about last time on, on Monday. But uh, first thing is, of course, we had the... the um, on Monday night, we had the release of two uh, elderly Israeli women from Gaza. They were returned home, uh, Yochefet uh, Lifshitz and Nurit Cooper. And there was this extraordinary scene, uh, this video. Uh, this is the video that was released by Qassam showing their release. And then... Um, you know, they're given tea and so on. But then there's this extraordinary moment uh, where uh, that's uh, Yochevet Lifshitz, who's 85 and who is living in um, in a kibbutz near the Gaza border. And so she's being handed over to the Red Cross. And now, and she turns around, turns around, uh, pauses, shakes the hand of the Qassam fighter and says shalom to him. And that video, of course, is now quite famous and caused a lot of a stir, yeah, uh, in Israel. Then she gave a press conference, uh, John, uh, on Tuesday from the Ikhilov Hospital in Tel Aviv, where she was examined. And she was asked, well, among, this has now been widely reported. She said that, the, that it was very frightening being, uh, being taken prisoner and, uh, being carried on the back of a motorcycle and it was extremely painful and it sounds like an absolutely horrifying experience particularly for a lady of that age but then she talks about uh, being taken into a spider web of tunnels uh, we'll get uh, just hold on to that for a second Tamara uh, and include she says a spider web of tunnels and a big hall as as part of this tunnel network we'll come back to that just hold that thought but then, uh, Tamara, come back, come back to that video uh, where she was asked uh, why she, sh she shook the hand of that fighter. This is what she said. Go ahead, play it. Let's play it. And she's, she says, what, why? They say they treated us gently and they provided for all our needs. 
אימא שלי אומרת שהם התייחסו אליהם בעדינות וסיפקו את כל הצרכים שלהם. My mom is saying that they treat them kindly and provided for them. הם נראו מוכנים לזה. So that we can, I think that's enough, we can pause it there. But so she said of course that the Hamas fighters that they treated the captives well, that they ate the same food as they did, they provided them with medical care and so on. So that's just, and that caused a huge backlash in Israel. We've had journalists and apparently officials of the propaganda, you know, the Israeli official propaganda, Hasbara, saying she shouldn't have been allowed to give a live press conference. And uh, her son gave an interview to Israeli television yesterday, I believe, saying that uh, prior to the inter- to the press conference, she was coached uh, by Israeli officials on what she should should and shouldn't say, but she just ignored it and decided to say what what was the truth and what was her experience. So that that's just to He's, bring... he said he said she said she's not property of the state. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. But coming back to and then keeping in mind her uh, her comments or what she revealed about the tunnels uh, let, let's look at this story that appeared in Middle East eye yesterday John um, now well, this is something we talked about last uh, on Monday before this came out this story claims that Israel plans to flood the tunnels with nerve gas and then If you scroll scroll the story a little bit um, so we can read the first paragraph or so uh, I don't know if we can do that Tamara or I can pull it up on my computer so it says the first paragraph says Palestinian groups expect Israel to flood Hamas tunnels with a type of nerf gas or chemical weapon under the surveillance of US Delta Force commandos as part of a surprise attack and On the Gaza Strip, a senior Arab source familiar with the Palestinian groups told uh, Middle East I. Now a couple of the, now what strikes me there is this is not coming from any alleged Israeli or American source, but from a Palestinian source. I don't know what to make of this, John. What do you make of it in terms of how this is phrased and also, what it claims could happen which is uh, this this pumping the tunnels full of of nerve gas yeah I mean even if it's a psyop it's a deeply disturbing one um, it was a story that we talked about on last show because it was first leaked to Netanyahu's newspaper the free Sheldon Adelson newspaper that gets uh, the highest circulation in Israel. So it's obviously a psyop that they're working on and then they pass it on to Middle East eye. So um, I think you could sort of see where it came from, judging by Netanyahu's paper. But um, I, I mean, it's deeply theoretical. I don't, uh, the, there's a bunch of things to say about it. The first thing I'd say is it, it, it's assuming that you're clearing the surface level. So it's assuming that you're fighting your way through the Gaza Strip into the tunnel area that you're trying to get to. So it assumes something right away that's very unclear uh, at this point. It's very theoretical. 
the Israelis themselves say that the tunnels are their tunnel study is theoretical um, because they actually don't have any operational experience in the tunnels. Their soldiers are prohibited from entering the tunnels unless it's been closed at one end. So they don't have any operational experience in the tunnel. Um, that woman, the lady released the other day, has more, much more uh, operational experience in the tunnel than any Israeli soldiers, even um, even close. So that's the first thing to say. Um, and then it assumes that you're able to stay in that position and hold that position and move up and down through the tunnel because the tunnel is a very difficult um, space to operate in. Like she said, the lady said, it's a spider web. And a spider web implies that you have many turns, many forks. Um, and so even if the soldiers can get down into the tunnel, it's very resource heavy to be down there because you have to guard with two soldiers each tunnel turn of this spider web that she's describing. Your radios don't work. It's dark. Um, your night vision goggles don't work because it's so dark down there. Um, you don't know where you're going. If you send a robot ahead of you, you have to tell the robot where to go. So if you don't know where to go, the robot doesn't know where to go. Um, and so if it was a single objective, as if like we're trying to, the Delta Force are trying to clear out the basement where they're, where they found, say they found the place they want to go, which itself isn't clear. Gilad Shalit was six years in the Gaza Strip and the Israelis admit they never had a clue where he was at any point in that six years. So already we're making enormous assumptions on Israeli capabilities. Um, that they have never demonstrated before. So say it's one objective, it's one basement, it's one room that they're trying to get. Um, can you do 25 of those? Can you do 40 of those? It takes a company level amount of soldiers to handle these operations, 200 minimum, because the soldiers have to be constantly replaced because it's the air is difficult, it's dark, disorienting. Um, you're, it takes a long time to get down there. The tunnels, um, you know, could be 30, 40, 70 meters deep, like 70 stories down, right? Like um, it's it's deep under the ground and you're disoriented. The, the air is difficult. And then they have doors. They have doors on these areas um, that lead to the next area. Those doors could be closed and then they have to be breached. So the Israelis have to go down in the tunnel, bring the explosives down with them. In the 2014 war, they were blowing up tunnel entrances with 11 tons of explosives. So now you're bringing all of those explosives from Israel. You're driving them through Gaza, presuming what? Nobody's shooting at these uh, you know, transfers. Um, and then you're taking those extremely dangerous explosives down under the ground and you're creating explosions where your soldiers are you're risking tunnel collapses the air is terrible um, and your own people that you're in theory trying to to save it sounds like you're trying to kill them if you're going to put nerve gas in there um, are, are down there and that's one that's if it's one tunnel there's 1300 tunnels there's 500 kilometers, the Israelis say 500 kilometers of tunnels. 
and some of them are 70 meters deep. So uh, it's just a really difficult uh, thing to imagine. And while that's all happening, the Palestinians have self-contained units. So they have phone lines that are just for the tunnels. They don't connect outside. They can't be tapped. They're down there with food, fuel, uh, oxygen, ventilation, weaponry. Um, they John, have I all of the advantages. Every single advantage is there underneath the ground. I think and we can... Sorry, John. I think we, we have a... Uh, there was a video that was released of the tunnels recently, um, which I think we can play. Um, let's play it, and then we can talk about it. Right, so that's a Soraya Al Quds video, and you can see I'm from just, there. Uh, I'm the, just sorry, the John, tunnels... to interrupt just for those who didn't understand it. The, that Soraya Al Quds, the uh, Islamic Jihad's military wing, and at the end of that video, they say "Ahlan wa sahlan bikum," so they're saying to the Israelis, "You know, welcome. We're waiting for you." So it's kind of taunting them. Yeah, and the lights are on. When the Israelis come, they'll turn the lights off. So it'll be total darkness. And you see those that for, the fork that, that they walk around you, when they turn the corner. If the Israelis are going down there with men, they need to, every, everyone, every one of those turns needs to be defended. So the soldiers that do actually make it down into the tunnel and they're moving through the tunnel disoriented, pitch black, no radios, counting their footsteps to try to figure out which ways north, south, east, or west. Uh, Palestinians all know where those tunnel turns are. And when the Israelis reach each turn, they have to leave a soldier to guard that flank, right? So each soldier that is coming down has to guard each one of those turns or else they're going to be ambushed from behind. The tunnels are designed for that purpose. They're designed ultimately uh, for protection, but with the understanding that there's going to be an attacking force in theory, like the Israelis say, in theory, they have no operational experience doing this, um, that they'll be attacked. So you have to assume, which we don't know, but you'll have to assume that there's booby traps, that there's false doors, that there's fake entrances that they spend time and resources trying to blow up where there's nothing behind it. Um, any kind of decoys like that. The whole time they're doing this, they're at the risk of mass casualty. Their own gas, they're carrying their own gas down into this tunnel. Um, they get trapped in a room holding their gas. It's not clear that that's even possible. There's 1,300 tunnels, 500 kilometers of it. I don't think that you can have uh, air sealing on uh, a seal of the air enough to for gas to penetrate something that's uh, half the size of the New York subway system. It just seems I like see. we're talking in real deep theory about the gas. But in talking about this disgusting story about the gas, we can learn about the tunnels and we can also understand what Israel senses um, because that's their dream scenario. 
um, that brutal war crime that the world would talk about for generations, gassing people underground, um, that, that's, that's something that they're thinking about because they don't have any idea what to do with this strategic uh, objective in front of them. Even each tactical stage, when you listen to subterranean soldiers, special forces talk about this stuff, the Americans have special forces, subterranean units to, um, to prepare for fighting in North Korea, where they have, you know, probably the best underground network. Uh, we don't know because we haven't seen Gaza's, but probably better than Gaza's. Um, the Americans have soldiers training for that. And you can hear them talking about it. They're talking about wearing chemical suits because it's so dangerous with your weaponry, off-gassing. Um, so they're wearing these big um, like hazmat type suits. They have gas masks. Um, they and they pass out. They have these special forces soldiers that are supposed to be, you know, the strongest, toughest um, in their army, and they're passing out. Um, they're disoriented. They're claustrophobic, as you can imagine. Um, and it's scary. It's deeply scary for them to do it, even if they're capable of doing it, which there's no sign um, so far that 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 is the case. The enormity of the task to, you know, quote unquote, eradicate Hamas means you're going to be fighting down in this space for years. It, this is not a multi-day operation. But First they did, of all, they did say your, they... They did say that they're planning for a long war, though. So is, isn't this exactly what they're, they're ready for? And Netanyahu yesterday gave a national address promising the Israeli people, yeah, there will be a, a ground invasion. It's all planned. We're, we're ready to go. We're just, you know, we're doing it in our own time. So is that all bluff or is it, I mean, what, how, what you're saying and what they're saying are on opposite uh Polls, so to speak. Well, I mean, I think they're saying the same thing. When you read their tunnel, um, their tunnel experts are saying the same thing that it's not clear. Um, you know, IDC Herzilia, which is the like leading security think tank, their their tunnel uh, specialist, IDF tunnel specialist, didn't see uh, that this was a possible operation. American tunnel fighters, special forces, aren't saying that it's going to be. Uh, that they've never seen it before. It's yeah, it's possible it happens. The Israelis have thousands of soldiers that have been training for more than a decade, special forces units that have trained only for this. They spend all their time training for this operation. Um, and it's entirely possible that uh, that they are prepared for it. I'm just saying we haven't seen that. We haven't seen any record of that in any of these wars where tunnels were a factor. They were a factor in South Lebanon in 2006. They were obviously a huge factor in 2014. The tunnels, the two tunnel operations, um, the one in Shajaiya and the one in Rafa, um, basically ended the ground operation. They were both so spectacular, uh, you know, visions of defeat for the Israelis. They were chasing their soldiers down into the, into the tunnels, assuming they had been caught. Um, going against the prohibition, and then they carried out the Hannibal Directive in both of those instances, um, because this it's 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 very difficult fighting. Um, because we're theorizing uh, and speculating, I, my position is not that they cannot do it. Uh, if you want to spend ten years, um, if you want to ethnically cleanse the population so that you don't have resistance on the surface level. Um, Palestinians are preparing to fight them in the air. We've seen the suicide drones be used. Um, they're preparing to fight them up and down tall buildings. They're preparing to fight them on the street level. 
and they're preparing to fight them underneath the ground. So it's a very, very sophisticated operation that the Israelis are going to have to pull off that presumably they've been planning some time for. But the surprise attack of October 7th def definitely expedited uh, whatever plans they did have for an invasion, because the way Israel treats Gaza, it seemed like there wasn't going to be an invasion. They were going to lock the place shut with this very expensive fence that was going to just keep people trapped inside like they have always been. They could run, uh, you know, run sh uh, skeleton crews on a holiday, um, which is what th that they say was happening during that attack. Um, yeah, it's 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 an enormous task. The thing that they're talking about to eradicate every Hamas fighter for generations to come, as Netanyahu said, um, is a very maximalist goal that um, in the most difficult terrain in the world. The ex-CENTCOM chief said that it would be a bloodbath for both sides. So that's CENTCOM saying it's going to be a bloodbath for the Israelis. And I don't think that they're not hearing that in those meetings with the Americans. I, I have to assume that they're aware of that. And I guess the supposition for the Israelis is that they believe that they will somehow through intelligence or somehow discover the place where the captives are held. And then it's just a single operation to get down into that room. But we don't know that they know where they are. And so- oh, And it seems unlikely, it seems unlikely that they would all be held in the same place as well. And they'll be in different places. They'll be above yeah. and below ground. Um, and you'll have people preparing to fight in, in that video that we saw. There's not enough room, you're single file. Um, you know, you're not bringing motorcycles down there, but Palestinians have motorcycles down there. You don't have command and control if you're the Israelis because you can't use your radios underground. But Palestinians have command and control because they have uh, secure phone lines, uh, self-contained phone lines, which should give them command and control throughout the entire war, which at times the Israelis won't have because when they're working in an urban environment, their radio signals are going to be blocked by high buildings and by the the towers that they dropped on top of people um, the concrete and rebar and people's lives are breaking up their radio streams and their vaunted network connectivity um, it's a very very difficult fight that they're promising um, it's a brutal fight and it's a fight that maybe by the time they've uh, killed the number of people necessary to do this brutality that gassing people by the end uh they might think that that's a normal thing to be talking about but i would suggest that it it says that delta force is out of ideas if they're using delta force as the uh you know as the ostensible authors of these plans um it it seems to me to show a lack of a plan more than it does something um reasonably possible i don't i, I think that you i mean we've seen gas used in the subway systems um, in Japan and in New York, and it it, 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 it it impacts one station, but it doesn't penetrate down the line and go all through the entire network to such a degree that all the fighters fall to, you know, fall dead and you just step over them on the way to save the day. Um, you're exposed to that gas too, um, presumably. 
Um, so it's, it's difficult to know how they would do it, even if it was one objective. If they found the spot, it was one objective, they drilled down a hole, inserted it um, somehow with gas. It can't be done by flooding, which is the other part of that story. There's not enough pressure to do that. And it also presupposes that you can pre-position your infrastructure in the middle of a war zone for long periods of time, because the soldiers that go down in the tunnels, they need to be replenished. They need to be, uh, they need to rotate in and out because you can't go down um, for long periods of time. They, they pass out. They, they're not good at using their breathing apparatuses. They only have an hour of air. Um, there's all kinds of difficulties um, and all kinds of defensive advantages for the Palestinians in the tunnel network to fight. In the tunnel network itself, there's also significant advantages to having your command and control completely underground um, during this whole war. The Palestinians haven't had that kind of long-term stable leadership that hasn't been assassinated. Hmm. Um, but 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 Gaza has that and has had that for you know seven or eight years. I guess Jabari was the last assassination, which is like 2012. It's it's so it's uh, the Palestinians have significant advantages in the tunnel network. Yeah. Uh, we just have a few minutes left, but uh, Abdul Jawad, I, I wanted you to respond to John's analysis about, um, about the tunnel network and about the uh, joint US Israeli, uh, you know, these plans seem like uh, Hollywood script writers came up with them. Um, uh, what's, what's your response to that? I mean, I think what's significant about the Middle East Eye story is that it's coming from Palestinian sources in English, and it's telling the Israelis we're ready for it. So, I mean, I think that's what the hint is. Um, it's leaked to tell the Israelis that even if you use gas, that we have tactical or techniques that will also enable us to continue the fight even under the tunnel. Um, so that would not surprise us. Um, we're ready for it. We have the capacity to to handle it. And I think that's why it's being leaked by a Palestinian Arab source. I think that's what's important about it. Um, it's that it's not going to be surprising. It's not something that will come out uh, off the bloom that we've already thought about this scenario. We already know that this is, might come and that, that that's what you might be planning. Um, and I think it's a signal to American intelligence, to American military planners, but also to Israeli military planners that um, if you're going down that line, this is not going to work. With you. I think that's the signal that is being said through that. And I want to touch only also about Ali. I mean, I think John gave a good analysis of all the problems with subterranean fighting that um, I just don't want to go uh, with it. But I do also think about, we need to think about this whole um, idea that Israel will be fighting for years in Gaza um, in terms of its current, at least military posturing. I don't think that it's it's possible. I think that you cannot sustain a situation where you're under Juris from the, the Northern Front, where you have to uh, raise 360,000 reserve soldiers and not damage uh, your country's economy, not damage your high-tech sector, not damage a sector that always needs to be updated because a lot of these uh, reserve soldiers work in the most sensitive areas in Israel's economy as well, and now they're being taken to, to war. I mean, And not to mention tourism as well. Who's going to go on vacation there? Yes, not to mention tourism, 
not to mention uh, also all of the Israelis that are now displaced internally that want to go back to their homes and continue with their lives, not to mention the kidnapped uh, uh, people in the Gaza Strip and their families who mm -hmm. want their daughters to come back soon. There's a lot of pressures. I, I think that when we think about at least what the phase one and two of this campaign, when we talk about years, that maybe there's a political fight, a siege plan, uh, something along that we will maintain operational capacity in, 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 in terms of air power in the Gaza Strip and keep the pressure. Maybe they're thinking that way. But to sustain this current military posture that they have, it's not something they can sustain beyond uh, a couple of months at maximum. You know, like if, if, if they're willing to sacrifice a lot um, on, the, on the altar of, of Gaza and to try to change the equation. So I think that that also thinking about the durability of campaign, we need to be any yeah, uh, more realistic about even Israel is clear. I think what they're doing is is more of a diplomatic maneuver with their friends and allies rather than something that is actually concrete. I still do believe that they're, they don't have a concrete strategy, that uh, there's a lot of mixed messaging around. Maybe they're preparing some sort of surprise. I'm not sure. But I haven't really saw like uh, this discourse that you know we're we're gonna surprise with our grand maneuver. Um, it's like going to a surprise birthday party that you already know that there's gonna be a birthday party. You know, like you're you're sending this message that we're gonna surprise you before surprising people, and I think that is always uh, you know a bad um, also messaging happening at some point. So I think they're still in a, in a frenzy. They don't know what to do. But what worries me the most is that they're creating a strategy of humanitarian crisis and that they're continuing with their air assault and they're giving the timeline by the international, uh, by their allies to continue with this onslaught and massacre to pressure the civilians uh, in Gaza to rise up against, for instance, the resistance. And I think that is the policy that is at least we have witnessed until now. That's the only thing that the Israelis are doing at this point. Um, maybe that will change later on. Maybe they're willing to go in. But at this point of this war of attrition against civilians, it's a big problem for, from the Palestinian perspective because you see um, this amount of death, as we talked about, um, continuing, and then this talk about the grand maneuver just becomes um, a, a strategic guise for the continuation of air bombardment that have no military value whatsoever, um, except placing pressure on a civilian population to somehow break down and end Hamas's rule, or for Hamas to surrender without a fight, um, or Palestinian factions, Palestinian resistance more broadly. So I think that's the the that's the element that at least for now they're going and they're doing and i think that what we should be focused on is also that it's it's that that needs to stop i mean um, this onslaught this massacre of civilians and that's where i think everybody in the solidarity movement also should focus on and yeah absolutely um so uh last last thoughts john and and ali um about uh what what we've seen the last few days and um you know without without speculating uh too much what what the next few days might look like i just want to say that uh it's becoming untenable for this to continue even you know it, it has continued now for 20 days unspeakable massacres day after day after day and i believe there's been some 
signaling even from the US about humanitarian pauses, um, which of course is another way of saying ceasefire. But I mean, in a way, if there is a so-called pause, um, I would hope that it would be very difficult for Israel to restart the bombing, and that's probably why they're not interested in a pause. Uh, but at this point, the urgency is to stop the bombing, stop the genocide. And um, I am just, uh, I, I think really the only prospect of that is if the rest of the world, which is clearly horrified by what's going on, really uses all whatever diplomatic and political muscle it has to impose that on the United States. Now, I, I don't see it coming any other way. Uh, and, and that just seems to me urgent. And I, I hope that the clear hesitation the Israelis have, I don't discount that they may well go in in some sort of ground attack, whether it's larger or smaller or a series of operations, because they have you know, pinned their prestige to that uh, whole idea. But I'm hoping that the, the knowledge or the sobering up, let's say, to the reality that there's not a lot they can achieve other than more death and destruction uh, will push towards ending this because at that point, this, this, that just seems to me the priority to end this slaughter. Yeah. And John, what are you going to watch carefully? Uh... Well, I mean, I would just say like throughout all of this, these attacks on the brutal, um, cowardly attacks on civilians that the Palestinian resistance has been fighting this whole time. Yesterday, um, Qassam uh, naval commandos came up on the beach at Zakim and fought for, it looked like for several hours inside Israel itself. They've launched uh, long range rockets on Haifa and Elat, which are you know, 150, 200 kilometers away. Um, and they've demonstrated air defense capabilities, both man portable air defenses and fixed air defenses. Um, so we're seeing resistance that I don't think gets, um, it doesn't get coverage in nor uh, anywhere that I listen to in North America on mainstream media, um, that that's happening constantly, um, even, even in this um, in intermediate period where Israel's, um, you know, just carrying out brutal bombings uh, yeah. and a siege. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just going to say, and also the resistance is, is leading a psychological campaign in terms of how it's throwing the rockets. It's allowing Israelis to live normal life and then disrupt that normal life. Right. And that return of normalcy also kind of cools down the drums of war in Israeli society. So there's there's kind of calculated use of its firepower, a calculated use of its psychological abilities, also in terms of what we saw with the prisoners being released in terms of, you know, uh, discrediting this uh, narrative that, you know, the Palestinian fighter is profane. It's changing a lot of the narrative around also Palestinian fighters and creating a lot of discordance within Israeli society. And I think that is one thing that is also kind of happening and festering that is also about to burst up in Israeli society. Who, who takes accountability? What happened to us? And uh, and all the lies and exaggerations and misinformation and disinformation that the Israelis were fed about the events of 7th October that will come back to Israeli society and will start a, a long process of, of, of inner fighting. 
Yes. Um, thank you, Abdul Jawad. You are an academic writer uh, at Birzeit University in the Occupied West Bank. Uh, John mm -hmm. Elmer, you are a contributing editor now and also writer and researcher and my co-host over at the Brief Podcast. Um, uh, Asa and I are both uh, associate editors of the Electronic Intifada and of course, uh, Ali Aburima is our executive director. Before we go, I want to make sure that people hit like and subscribe um, as uh, tedious and, 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 and weird as that sounds. It, it really uh, helps us beat the algorithms um, on YouTube. So, so please do do that. And uh, we have a few comments. Um, yeah. In the slideshow. Yeah, Go ahead, Asa. A few comments. Um, we, had, we had a lot of support today. Um, lots of people discovering the channel for the first time. Sounds right. like the live the live streams. So glad I found this live discussion. Um, and uh, the big teal said, "Thank you so much, Ali, Nora, Abdul, Jawad, John, and Asa for your hard work." And we had lots of support from around the world, of course, for Rifat earlier yeah. in the chat. There's a viewer here from uh, India, which is nice to see. Um, the US and uh, the African diaspora. So thank you, everyone. Thank you all so much. And um, be sure to uh, sign up. I think on the YouTube page, you can sign up uh, to be notified uh, when these live streams are scheduled um, so you don't miss one. Uh, but of course, go to our website at electronicintifada.net. You can look at the crawl down there. Um, lots of new features. And of course, we're publishing all day long. Um, so be sure to check us out and sign up for our mailing list. And I, if I yeah. can just say again, yes. take the opportunity to thank everybody who has shown so much support for us. We are, yeah. uh, our inboxes are flooded. And so we're very sorry that we haven't been able to get back to everyone. But people are showing support with their messages. They're showing support with their donations, which of course allow us to do all this work and all this reporting. And uh, you you also keep our spirits up. So um, and we all need that. And I know I've had really touching messages from people telling us how this live stream keeps your spirits up because it's so hard to go through this feeling alone, especially when we're awash in all the propaganda. So thank you for being here. And please also this video will be available after the live stream. So please share it and and let other people know about it and and i just want to say thank you for all the support and all the love yes thank you and we'll see you next time thanks so much <laughs>